0: Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church Queen. as we go into the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Herwick and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church Dequeen at Dequeen.Church, that's our website. And on our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And feel free to drop a like or share this podcast, Uh, subscribe to it uh, if you find it helpful. Uh, We've been looking at the book of Revelation and we ended uh, on our last podcast at the end of Revelation chapter 2. So today we're starting Revelation chapter 3 and we're going to finish the words Jesus has specifically to say to seven churches that he lists out at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So here in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says that he knows that the persona that this church in Sardis, that they give to the world, is not what is really going on within them. He knows that they're hypocrites. Similarly, Jesus knows our works, and he knows when we're putting on a show for other people to think that we, we have it all together when we really are consumed with turmoil. This church there are, is known for being great Christians, yet Jesus says that they are the opposite of that, And when we think about what it means when Jesus says the believers are dead and then in the next verse he says that they are about to die, what he's talking about is that the church itself is as though it were a dead man walking. Everyone externally thinks that they are alive and active, but in truth, as a church, they are dead on the inside. Their individual faith is in the process of dying because of a lack of health. They have not taken care of their faith and allowed it to fall into such a shape that it is threatening the very existence of their church. There are still some things that are good uh, if only the people would, would fulfill the good deeds that they had started, if only they would increase their faith so as to fully support the expressions of faith into which they were engaging. And he tells them there, he tells them to wake up, which literally means to be watchful, to be watchful. And this is especially striking considering the history of the city of Sardis. It was a very wealthy city due to commerce and, and buying and selling. And the wealth and the fact the city was built on a very steep hill led to laziness. There were two separate occasions when the city was overtaken by enemies because of a lack of watch. Which is, you know, you think about it, they were, the city was overtaken once by enemy because they weren't paying attention. And so they rebuilt the city after that uh, uh, passed. And yet, still, again, they refused to, to keep watch, to be watchful. And so the city was overtaken by an enemy again. So Jesus saying these words, be watchful, wake up, would have really struck in the minds of every person there in Sardis knowing their own personal history. Now look at verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The, The people of the church are encouraged to keep the faith, similar to the faithful in Thyatira that we've seen previously. They're told to repent of their lackadaisical attitude and their sinfully faithless lifestyle. If they do not, Jesus said that he would himself come against them. And think about what does it really mean to have Jesus come against your church? You know, what, what Jesus tears down cannot be upheld. And this specifically could be referring to the church or even the individuals within the church or both, really. Either way, similar to removing the lampstand of the church in Ephesus, if someone makes a habit out of unrepentantly standing in the way of God's progress, he will remove them. Look at verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, when Jesus says there, uh, who have not soiled their garments, that idea of soiling their garments, that is, uh, their garments are dirty and gross and nasty. They have, are, are dishonored. They are displaying a uh, lifestyle of dishonor. And yet, he says, there are still a few godly people left. They have not allowed the negative influence of the others in the church to tear them down. And yet, their positive influence has not been enough thus far to curb the faithless activities of the rest in the church. Even though they were not able to influence the others towards positive things for Jesus, they themselves were not dragged down towards the, uh, the opposite direction that Jesus wanted them to go. And he says that they will be worthy. They will be worthy enough to wear white and walk. With Jesus now, this worthiness it, it doesn't stem from their own accomplishments. Rather, they're worthy because of the perseverance of their faith in already daily walking with Jesus in this life. Walking with Jesus now means walking with Jesus then. Now, verse five and six: The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will not and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we read that and a question that comes up might be, what does it mean that one who perseveres in the faith will be presented to God and will not be removed from the book of life? I mean, oftentimes when we're taught about the book of life, we're we're taught about Jesus writing names in the book of life, but here he says the names will not be removed from the book of life. Now we know from other scriptures, and we'll see actually later on in this chapter that once you receive salvation, your salvation can never be removed. And yet those written in the book of life, it would seem, are those who are saved. However, that's not exactly uh, the way Jesus is using here. It here or. It would seem that way. This word he uses for to blot out his name means to wipe away, to eliminate for all time. I mean, it's a permanent action. But Jesus is saying that he, that those who believe will never be erased, because Jesus will confess that individual's name before Father, his Father. Jesus uh, will be his is you know, uh, the one who stands up and and. Says he's with me, kind of idea. It's heavenly security, eternal security of salvation. Now, th- but the the imagery, he, I will never blot his name out, could be, you know, a, a language to us, an idiom, referring to people who, you know, believe, being vouched for by Jesus before the ultimate judge. Um, but it also seems that it's being literally. Uh, drawing on Paul's declaration in 1 Timothy 2.4, where Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved. And what's interesting there, to me, having done you know, some, some research on this, is the word there used for desire, God desires all people to be saved, is a Greek word that means to will to will. So literally, the translation would be God wills all people to be saved. So God wills all people to be saved, and yet some refuse that salvation. And when they do that, they remove themselves from God's will. And so the implication from the fact that names are erased from the book of life is that names, that all the names are in the book. And that the erased names are those who did not overcome, those who did not conquer, those who did not have faith, those who did not believe. These are unbelievers. So if taken literally, it would seem that everyone's name is written in the book of life as having the opportunity for life. And those who choose or those who chose not to believe in Jesus are then erased because they have forfeited their lives. Look at verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens i know your works behold i have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut i know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name now what christ opens no one can close and what he closes no one can open he his will prevails always you know it, it it's impossible to open a door that got shut or or or, or shut a door that god has opened right there in the middle of that verse he, he gives this phrase that many of us would pass over um honestly i did in an initial reading of this he says that jesus talking of himself he's the holy one the true one he has the key of david and the question that popped in my mind after you know diving deep is, what exactly is this key of david is it just some symbol that he's talking about, the you know, the ancestral line of David that leads to the Messiah. Well, actually, this key of David is something very specific that comes from the Jewish scripture, from Isaiah chapter 22. There was this one chief official in Israel. He was like the vizier, the steward of the kingdom. He wasn't the king, but he had grown so prideful and thought so much of himself that he had taken it upon himself to carve out a grave, that he would reside in, once he died, among the graves of the king. He elevated himself to that of a king, even though he was not anointed, not chosen by God to be a king. So he was removed from his position, and his authority was given to a guy named Eliakim. And with that, he was handed a symbol of, of authority. And that symbol was the key of David. The key represented authority. It, it it was the authority to have absolute access to anywhere and everywhere in the kingdom and that no one had greater authority. So here, by Jesus saying that he holds the key of David, Jesus is saying that the absolute authority is his and there's no one greater. And with that authority there in verse eight, Jesus opens a door and this open door could be a door of blessing, of glory, because of the faithfulness of the people, it could be a door of opportunity or, or, or really simply it could be the door of salvation. whatever, whatever, it would seem to be something good because Jesus opened it for the people. But he says that they have little power and yet have kept his word and have not denied his name. This little power or little strength uh, could be referring to several different things. Uh, It could be referring to a small number or a small number of people within the church or a limited amount of influence or, or both of those things. And yet, In spite of the apparent odds being against them, these people have remained faithful. They have little visual strength from an outside observer, but they have nonetheless stayed strong in the faith, which is the only strength that matters to Jesus. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So he references again the synagogue of Satan that was uh, actually one chapter ago to the verse. I mean, Revelation 2 verse 9, speaking of the synagogue of Satan in another city. Um, He says that these people um, will bow down to you. They're, They're causing problems. They're standing up and, and saying they are Jews, saying they are followers of God, but in fact, they are not. They are following Satan. Now, these liars, who they are, is very interesting. You know, Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28-29. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, he's talking about Jews were followers of God. And that when the ancestral Jews denied that Jesus had come from God, that Jesus was the Messiah, that those Jews, they stopped following God, and then stopped following God, stopped being God's believers. And so he's saying they are not who they say they are. So Christians are the true Jews, for they are now the true believers, the followers of God. And there was a common Jewish misconception that their salvation was dependent upon their ancestry and not their belief, which Paul here in Romans 2, 28, 29 is emphasizing. And Jesus, in Revelation 3.9, he's speaking to that as well. Look in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's that phrase, patient endurance again. He, he's mentioned that several times about several of these other churches. And uh, he's talking about faithful endurance till the end, saving faith. Uh, not a, he's not saying that there's a moment where your faith wavers or you have a, 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 you know, a, a dive into doubt that you lose your salvation because it, it did not continue to persevere at an ever-increasing level. Um, this is just a way of saying saving faith. But then he says, if you have saving faith, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This hour of trial because of their faithfulness, they will not undergo this testing that the rest of the world is about to go through. It it would seem he's specifically talking in the context of the book of Revelation uh, about a trial that's coming on the whole world that will begin in Revelation chapter 6. Now, this could be saying that the believers will not be present at all during the trial, or it could be saying that the believers will be present, but they will not experience the trial. Now, as we get on in further to the book of Revelation, we will see more specifically what he's talking about. He's not necessarily citing one way or another in that regard, whether believers will be present while the trial is going on, or believers will, you know, will just simply not experience it, but they will be present. Uh, he's not taking a position at this point on that. He's simply saying that they will not experience the trial that everyone else will. Verse 11 through 13. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that those who believe, those who hold fast, those who conquer, those who have saving faith, again, Jesus will make those people a pillar in the temple of my God. This pillar is in contrast to the potential crown seizing in the previous verse. In the previous phrase. The pillar is safe, the pillar is secure. The pillar represents the eternal security of salvation that cannot be dissolved from any forces. And then he says that on that pillar will be written three things. The name of God, the name of the New Jerusalem, and the name of Jesus. Now, the name of God is a sign of whose they are. The name of the New Jerusalem is a sign of their residence. This is believers. And the name of Jesus is a sign of the price of eternity being paid. It's already been paid in full. Jesus' name is stamped there. And so everyone who believes and has their uh, uh, price of eternity paid um, has access because of Jesus. And then we see there in verse 13 again that there's an emphasis that this message does not just apply to the name church but that the teaching is applicable to every believer who would read these words. You he has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's even us. If we have ears to hear what God is saying to us, what the Spirit is saying to us, we can receive the same teaching that is mentioned here. Now notice here with the church in Philadelphia, something similar to the church in Smyrna. There was nothing negative that Jesus said against them he had only words of praise and encouragement. So what does that really tell us? Well, it tells us that size and influence mean nothing when compared with faithfulness. And then Jesus begins speaking to the very last church, the seventh church, which is interesting when we just come from Philadelphia, the, his words to Philadelphia, where there's no words said against that church now he's going to speak to the church in laodicea where there is nothing said positively about them verse 14 to the angel of the church in laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of god's creation the amen that means barely truly i mean uh, emphasizing again when he says the true witness he is the true witness. He, is faithful. He says these words are to Laodicea, the church in Laodicea. Now Laodicea was a very wealthy city, and they dealt primarily in in banking and in wool, and they also had a world famous um, medical school that uh, was world famous, particularly because of their research into the care of the eye. They had one student who went there and later wrote a textbook that was widely adopted about how to care for a person, uh, you know, uh, uh, another human being's eyeball. And so they prided themselves on those two things, banking, the wool that they produced, and their medical school. Now, in the century uh, leading up to the writing here of the book of Revelation, there were two great earthquakes that ravaged the region. And the first one uh, was back in the teens, A.D. sometime, and it was devastating. I mean, it it, it really wrecked a lot of the cities, um, and Laodicea being one of those cities. I mean, just completely demolished it, and they took governmental help to help rebuild. Well, some uh, 30 or so years after that, 40 years somewhere in there, 30, 40 years after that, there was another earthquake that, obliterated the city but this time in the intervening years the 30 or 40 years between the first earthquake and the second one uh, they had gotten so wealthy that they turned down any governmental help and the individuals in the city used money from their own pockets to rebuild the whole city and now another 30 or 40 years have passed uh, since that earthquake and their wealth has only increased exponentially uh, since then but we also know that this is not that here in Revelation chapter 3, this is not the only mention of Laodicea in Scripture. Paul writes uh, in his letter to the Colossians, the Colossian Christian, uh, of a faithful believer named Epaphras who ministered very hard in Laodicea. Now, it's possible that this guy Epaphras started Laodicean church, but the Scripture doesn't say that. At the very least, he helped the church there grow to seemingly great spiritual strength. And something happened between when Paul wrote the book of Colossians to here when John is getting the revelation from Jesus. Something happened. 30 years passed, and there seems to have been a sharp decline in the spiritual strength of the people in Laodicea. And so Jesus is talking to them with their history about some issues that they have. But then Jesus says something Really interesting. He says that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, there are some who take those words and pervert them a little bit, take them out of context a little bit, and say that Jesus was created. Jesus was the beginning of God's creation. He was the first of God's creation. But there's all kinds of problems with that. And first of all, if Jesus was a created being, He would not have been fully God. And if Jesus was not fully God, then his death would not have had enough power to pay for the sins of the entire world. Nor would his resurrection have had enough power to provide life after death for all who would believe. Jesus had to be God in order for salvation to be powerful enough to be accessible for all of humanity. So, Jesus was not the first of God's creation because Jesus was God. He was never created. What this means is when Jesus says that he is the beginning of God's creation, all of creation began because of Jesus. Actually, the Apostle John, who's receiving this revelation from Jesus here in Revelation chapter 3, writes about this very thing in John chapter 1. When he writes of Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That creation exists because Jesus was the one who created it. Look at verse 15. Jesus writes, or Jesus says, and John writes, I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Which literally means vomit. But when he says, I wish that you were cold or hot. Now I've heard this taught um, many years ago um, by some guys at probably a youth camp or something. That to say, I wish that you were cold or hot, Jesus was, Simply saying, choose a side. Be faithful or be unfaithful. Stop waffling around in the middle. But the problem with that is, Jesus would never want anyone to be unfaithful. So there must be another meaning here. And it comes from the context of the city of Laodicea. They were near a couple of the towns that had access to two things. One town was near a mountain and had access to cold running water coming down through a stream from the mountain. And another town had access to hot springs. Both cold water and hot water are useful in their own individual context. But if you were to use water expecting it to be cold and it's lukewarm, it would be useless. And similarly, if you were to use water expecting it to be hot, but instead it's lukewarm, it would be useless. It would be detestable. You know, if you were turned on the shower and stepped in and it's not hot, you were expecting it to be hot and it's lukewarm, it's frustrating. Or you've been out working in the yard and you come in to get a cool, Cold glass of water to cool down, and you take a big sip of it and you discover that it's lukewarm, it's frustrating. It's detestable. You're going to spit it out. Lukewarm is detestable and useless to the people. They need the water to be either hot or cold, not lukewarm. And so the believers here, they're simply existing, going about their own with no thought, deed, or word to the benefit of the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling the people in Laodicea, the Christians in Laodicea, guys, we need you to be useful. We need you to step up. We need you to, to, deuce, to be beneficial to my kingdom. Verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is telling them, things are not really as they seem, as you think they are. The people there feel comfortable and, and, and as though they are blessed because of their financial situation. But in reality, they're the exact opposite. They are the supreme wretched ones. They are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Nakedness was a supreme humiliation. They've been putting their faith into their own efforts. Instead of Jesus. And as a result, they've been found by Jesus in reality to be destitute. Now, look at those last three words. Jesus uses poor, blind, and naked. Now, that could be intentional comments about remember what they were famous for, right? Their banking, their medical school, referencing eyesight, and their wool production. So the very things that they prided themselves on banking, medical school, wool, are or seem to be the very things that are killing their faith and so jesus says instead of relying on your finances you're poor uh or because you've been relying on your finances you're spiritually poor because you've been relying on the the pride that comes from having this elite medical school about eyesight in reality you're blind And because you're so proud of all the wool you produce for clothing, in reality, you are spiritually naked. It's killing your faith when you're priding yourselves on these things that you do yourself. So look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this refined gold, he says, I counsel you to buy. This is spiritual wealth that is bought, quote-unquote, bought through faith, having been refined by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We should not settle for fake imitations, for cheap imitations of what God intends us to live on. Jesus is the only one who can provide true wealth, honor, that fine clothes provide, and real sight. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So we see from the mouth of Jesus that discipline and correction are signs of Jesus' love. They mean that he wants us to improve and experience a better life. If he didn't really care, he would not want correction. He, he would not take the time to correct. But because he does care, because he does love, he brings reproof. He brings discipline. He brings this correction in order to, to help us experience a better life. Verse 20 through 22. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now Jesus says there, I stand at the door and knock. Now I've heard it taught before. I've heard it sung about before. When Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, that he's talking about, you know, knocking on the hearts of those who, who are unbelievers. But remember, he, he's speaking here to a church, to believers. And so the phrase itself is addressed to believers. He's knocking on the lives of believers, hoping to enter and share a meal. But he's not just knocking, he's also speaking, calling out their name. He says, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. So he's knocking on the door and calling out to those inside, us believers, that he wants to come in and share a meal with us. Because dinner was intimate and familial. It seems to indicate a, a, a deep relationship between Jesus and the believer. So knocking and eating were about the believer inviting Jesus to be an intimate influence in his or her life. And then he says that we will sit on his throne just as he sat on God's throne. We will believers, will partake of the same eternal inheritance that the Son of God does. Being a conqueror just as Jesus was is speaking of overcoming the sin of the world through a belief in Jesus. He conquered as the Son of God through His death and resurrection. And we can conquer along with Him when we believe in His death and resurrection. So next week, we will take a look at the beginning of the vision of the apocalypse of the end of the world. But I want to thank you for joining us today as we examine Revelation chapter three. Uh and uh if this was helpful to you, like it, share this podcast, subscribe to it, and it will come drop straight into your app um, at any point. We're on Apple Podcast, uh, Google, Spotify, the whole shebang. And uh join us again next week as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation.